What an honor and what a privilege it is to be here and to share with this community of faith. And uh, for all of you all that are very intent uh, listeners, uh, I am uh, in the middle of matriculating uh, for my seminary degree, and I'm getting the cobwebs uh, out of my brain, having not been in school for a while. And so when I sent my bio, uh, I think I made a huge typo uh, by indicating that I was married in 2003. And uh, for all of you all that were trying to figure out how does he have an 11-year-old, and and so uh, I guess you all were trying to, you know, uh, have some compassion and mercy and justice towards me. Uh, I am celebrating 25 years of marriage this year. Uh, to <laughs> and, uh, and so I thank God for the opportunity to be here, and it's such a joy to be a part of this wonderful community of faith. Uh, before we go to the Word, uh, let's pray again to ask God to, uh, to speak to our hearts. Father, what an awesome time of worship. What an amazing time to, uh, to honor and to celebrate these missionaries who are serving you in such selfless ways. We pray, God, that your word would do what it always does, that it would be a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our pathway. That means that something is implicit within that, that once we hear it, that we actually will go on a path and that we will actually move out of where we are to where it is you've called us to go. And Father, for this weekend, as we remember all of the uh, the missionaries that are here, we also are mindful of the causes when, in which they, uh, they serve. Help us, Lord God, to figure out what it is that you would speak to our hearts as it relates to our um, call to those who are the least of these. We give you glory and we give you honor and praise in the name that is above every name. In Jesus' name, amen. There are two passages of Scripture that I want us to look at today, and I uh, just want to kind of give you a little bit of warning. I, I get a little bit excited, and uh, for all of you all who have not had your early morning coffee, I am your espresso. I am your uh, no cream, no sugar. I'm just uh, straight black, but it's... Uh, 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 so, so tell the person next to you, I don't think you'll go to sleep in these next few moments. Uh, Harvey's here. So in the Old Testament, there's a familiar passage of Scripture in Micah. Micah chapter 6 and verse 8, and so those of you who might be taking notes and want to look at this text a bit later, Micah 6 and 8 says these words, He has showed you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Again, he has showed you, O man of God, or O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you to act justly? to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And then we're going to skip over to the New Testament and spend a few, uh, the remainder of our moments as we teach today in Luke chapter 10, beginning at verse 25 of Luke chapter 10, a very uh, familiar passage of Scripture. It says in verse 25 of Luke 10, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. 
a priest happened to uh, be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So, too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was the neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. I had the opportunity last night to share with uh, the, the service uh, in the fellowship hall, and, um, and they're an awesome, awesome group of people. But I just believe you guys are so much smarter and you look so much better. And so I believe you're going really, to really get what I'm going to ask you to do. And so I always ask people to do something before I preach, and so it just looks like you're going to follow directions real clearly. I want you to get ready to turn to your neighbor and repeat what I'm going to ask you to repeat, uh, which is the subject of my message today. So I know some of you all are very antisocial, and you, um, you, do, you don't, you know, this is way out of your comfort zone to be asked to do something right now. And so some of you are trying to figure out, well, which neighbor do I turn to? Well, Jesus will answer some of those questions about who your neighbor is in a moment. Um, but if you would turn to the person next to you or the right or the left, and would you repeat the subject of the message today for me and kind of announce that to your neighbor, all right? Turn to your neighbor and say these words. Say to your neighbor, neighbor. Okay, some of y'all still didn't do it. Okay. Everybody's going to turn in some direction to a human being in your vicinity. And you're going to help me announce the subject of the message by speaking to them these words. Turn to someone near you and say to them, neighbor, there is often a strange place for justice and mercy. Now that you've had a trial run, turn to somebody on the other side and say, excuse me. There's often a strange place. For justice and mercy. I knew you guys were smarter. I knew you guys were smarter. Amen, amen, amen. A strange place. A strange place for justice and mercy. We live in amazingly troubled times. The city of Detroit, where I now uh, live and call home, uh, is facing probably some of the darkest hours that the city has ever faced. Indeed, out of all of the major cities in America, it's one of the most troubled financially. Many of you all who've been following in the news uh, have been reading that we're on the brink, possibly, of filing for bankruptcy. Uh, that implies that all of our city workers and all of those who have given their lives to public service in the city potentially will lose uh, their, their pensions. And uh, times are very, very difficult. My wife is in education, and the struggles that she finds, the students having to deal with day to day, she had to actually assist in getting a washer and dryer in installed in her school because most of the kids did not have one at home, and they had to actually do their laundry at school. The challenges are, are quite amazing. But the, the scriptures tell us that even in our world where sin and evil abounds, God's grace often much more abounds. In troubled times, God calls for the church to respond in a way that gives an answer to the world's problems. And so this weekend, I'm so elated that this church has decided to celebrate uh, those who serve and give themselves tirelessly to the cause of Christ. 
And not only them, but also raise the awareness of what it means for not just missionaries, but for every believer to walk and to act and to move as God calls us in the areas of compassion, justice, and mercy. And so you all, as we open the text today, we find several uh, conversations occurring. In the Old Testament in Micah, we find that the people of God often found their safety zones in doing those things that were comfortable. And even though it was uh, sacrificial in nature, it was still part of their religious underpinnings. So they would go to the the, the temple to worship. They would offer sacrifices. They would do all of these various things. They would fast. They would pray. And they said, surely this is what makes the Lord happy. And God says, well, you know, as much as I am grateful for your sacrifices and as much as it's good that you've chosen to to give these calves and to uh, to have these rams that you're sacrificing or even offering your firstborn, it says in the previous verse of, of verse seven of Micah, it says this is what the Lord requires of us. Now, you all it didn't say this is what the Lord suggests of us. It's not what the Lord supposes that we do. It says this is what the Lord requires of us. And for those of us that know the scriptures, we know that God changes not. The same God that was yesterday is today and will forever be. So what he required of Micah and what he required of the people in Micah's day is also what he requires of us today. And so if we know this is what he requires, we want to know, well, what is that requirement, God? What is it that you want us, your people, those who are called by your name, those who represent you, what is it that you would want us to, to do? And he answers, to act justly to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. He says three things that I really want everyone who is attached to me and who call uh, me their savior and who follow me, I want them to be embodied by these principles, that they first of all act justly. That those who belong to me, when they see injustice around them and they see injustice in the world, they make wrong things right. Things that they know that are not equitable, things that they know that are unfair. Those who belong to me, I want them to to not just think justice or contemplate justice, but to act justly. To make sure that we actually put faith to our heartbeat and put faith to those things that we consider to be a, a, a virtue and actually do something. To act justly. And you all, there's never been a time, uh, more than now for us to act justly. Our nation is in a moral decline. And because of that, there are people who are doing things that in their own eyes seem right. And some of those things have unbelievable penalties, unbelievable costs. Some of the issues that we face and some of the things that are around us, you all, are so difficult. Listen, not only in the world, but maybe in your own life, maybe in your own family, maybe in your own community. And he says, I want those of you who belong to me to do something about the injustice in the world. When I moved to Detroit 10 years ago, uh, I did not know a soul in the city. I came from a very large church here in Chicago. Chicago is my home. My mom is here. I'm an only child. And to move away from my comfort zone into Detroit, most people are moving from Detroit, let alone, you know. And here I am moving into Detroit. I found that there were so many broken things, so many churches. As a matter of fact, one of the statistics that was uh, really kind of sobering to me is that um, Detroit, Detroit, one of the poorest cities in America, per capita, has more churches than any other city in America. So based on its population, which is incredibly small now, uh, there's really almost three things you'll find on every block in Detroit. You'll find a liquor store. You'll find a a place called a Coney Island, which is kind of like a a greasy spoon restaurant, and a church. Uh, There'll be three things almost on every, and actually maybe a fourth thing, a beauty and supply store. 
I don't know what that means. I don't know if people go to church and then after that they get depressed and get something to drink and then need to get something to eat and then get their hair done after. I don't know what the, I don't know what the logic is. But, but bottom line, literally, you all, you can go down any street in Detroit and you'll pretty much find these, these, these staples. But yet so many churches that, that are full of the light and full of the answer, but yet so much injustice. How can there be so many churches and yet so much evil? When the Bible says that we're the light of the world and we're the salt of the earth, then how is it that the communities around us don't reflect that salt and reflect that light? So he says he wants us to act justly. So when I got to Detroit, I felt the call to do something different and to not just be a church that stays inside of the four walls. And you all, I thank God for the time of worship and celebration. But you know what I've learned? That the the body of Christ is not about the huddle. It's about the game. I don't know if you've ever been to a sporting event, but I don't know of anyone that spends a lot of money to pay for a huddle. I'm not sure if anyone says, oh, I, I cannot wait. You know, I've got some, some season tickets to see the huddle uh, down at Soldier Field. Can you imagine for about two hours just watching the team huddling and then they just go off the field and go back into the clubhouse? I mean, you would be upset about that. Well, imagine how heaven feels looking down at earth and God looking at his church every week huddling for morning and midweek services And then never breaking and going into the world and playing the game. Nothing wrong with assembling, but this is where we get instructions. This is where we get encouragement to actually go out and act justly. He says, so the first thing I want us to do uh, is to act justly. But then he says to love mercy. Uh, You know, grace is receiving from God what we don't deserve. And all of us are recipients of grace that are Christians, aren't we? We have received salvation. We receive God's love. We don't deserve those things. So grace is receiving what we don't deserve. And mercy is not receiving what we do deserve. And so he says, I want you to love mercy. Be merciful to others around you. Why? Because you've been shown mercy. Now, I know some of you all, you just look so wonderful. You really do. You're some of those beautiful people I've ever seen in my life. And I know that for many of you all, the moment that you came out of the womb, when the doctor smacked your bottom, you came out in deep worship. (laughs) You came out a believer. I mean, you probably have had no trouble and no disobedience in any of your life at all. Yeah, right. All have sinned, right? And all have come short of the glory of God. That means all of us have been shown mercy. And those who've been shown great levels of mercy often are those who show great levels of mercy. When we think about how good God has been to us and how gracious he's been to us and how he's not given us what we deserve, it then enables us to look at other people in their situations and say, you know what, even though you've done wrong and even though you sinned, the same level of mercy that God has shown me, I will now turn and love mercy enough to show it to you. He says, those who represent me, I want them to act justly, but also love to show mercy. Indeed, those who have been given great mercy are often those who give the greatest mercy. But then he says the last piece is to walk humbly before or with our God. He says those who desire to be involved in this, uh, this area of compassion and justice, listen, it's great to do it, but make sure that when you do it, you reflect the nature and the character that is mine. You do it with humility. You do it in a way that would point to, to God and not to yourself. Uh, in Detroit, I uh, uh, had 
the privilege of having several churches that come uh, to be a part uh, of our church and serve with us. Uh, I, I happen to pastor a multicultural church in Detroit. And if any of you all have ever been to Detroit, uh, Detroit, for the most part, the city proper itself, is primarily an African-American city. And by the way, I'm African-American. I mean, you may not have known this. So I just make sure you did, you know. And so I've been that way for a long time as well. Um, and, and so I assumed when I went to Detroit, Michigan, you know, that I would pastor an African-American church. I started the church and didn't have any members in the beginning. But I assume, you know, black preacher, black city equals black church. But God's ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are not our thoughts. Uh, as high as the heavens are from the earth are his ways from our ways. And, and for some reason, uh, we now have become the fastest-growing multicultural church in the city of Detroit. And I, to this day, do not have any idea where these white people are coming from. I mean, I, I don't know if I should do a survey or, or some kind of an online Facebook post and just ask them. But every week uh, from the north, south, east, and west, uh, not only uh, Anglo, but Hispanic and Asian, but all over the place people are coming. And so because of that, many suburban churches uh, want to partner with us and say, well, you know, you're doing great things in the city. And maybe we feel a little bit safer coming in because there's some folk that look like us. And so uh, one group came in several years ago, uh, and it was an amazing uh, uh, trip that they took. Uh, it was in the middle of the summer in about July, and they said, Harvey, we have such a burden for the city of Detroit, and we know that everyone in the city is poor, and everyone in the city is destitute, and everyone in the city needs great help, and we want to help. I said, well, wonderful. Uh, that's a great thing. And, and they said, well, Harvey, we, our hearts are just broken over the poverty in the city, and we want to be of assistance. I said, well, wonderful. They said, we've got a thousand blankets that we want to give out in July. This is July, you all. All right, okay, all right. And, and we want to give these blankets out. And I said, well, um, you, you know it's, it's July. They said, we know, but we've made these blankets. And Harvey, it just will mean the world to us if we do it. And, you know, uh, poor people, you know, they just take stuff. It don't matter what it is. Uh, so they gave away the thousand blankets in July. And, uh, and when it was all over, the leader of the group came to me and said, Harvey, you won't believe this. Uh, something tragic has occurred. I said, well, did anyone get hurt? They said, oh, no, 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 nothing like that, Harvey. Uh, we did not get an opportunity to take a picture and a photograph of the people receiving the blankets. Is it possible that you can get one of your black members to receive a blanket from us? And when they do, can they kind of cry a little bit? I said, you know, there's a verse in Micah uh, chapter 6, <laughs> verse 8, that says that when we do a service unto the Lord and when we do those things that we deem are necessary, we, we walk humbly. We walk humbly before our God. And so even as we're involved in compassion and justice and mercy and doing those things that the Lord requires, he says, do those things, but do them with a spirit that reflects my character. Do it in a way that when you do it, it's with humility. Because the same grace and the same mercy that has been shown to you, you're now showing that to others. Well, this was greatly depicted in uh, Luke's gospel, uh, chapter 10, when he unpacks and unfolds a story uh, that really has been with us for, for a long time. But I think we can uh, kind of put it in the context of this weekend's uh, domestic missions focus. Uh, so in verse 25, it says, an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this is a question that people have been asking forever. And how can I live forever? What can I do to live forever? I mean, everyone has asked this question from uh, philosophers to uh, great thinkers, theologians. I mean, everyone has been asking this question. And so this teacher of the law stands up and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
And Jesus, being the master teacher that he is, it says, uh, what's written in the law? Uh, how do you read it? You know, since you're the expert teacher in the law, what does the law say? And, of course, this very astute man responds, well, you know what it says, Jesus. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. I can see that he was almost saying this in a very religious way because that's what most of us do. Having probably grown up knowing the law and being a teacher of the law, he was very aware of this. It probably was second nature to say, oh, well, this is what God uh, would say uh, we should do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus says in verse 28, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So Jesus says, if you want to inherit eternal life, then do what the scriptures just said. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength and with all of your mind and then love your neighbor as yourself. If you do that, you will live. You will actually inherit eternal life. And so the Bible says that this guy's intention was not to inherit eternal life, but it says in verse 29, but he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who then, Jesus, is my neighbor? So Jesus begins to tell him a story about a man that was uh, heading down from Jerusalem uh, on his way to Jericho. And you back, know back in those days, Jerusalem was the, 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 the capital. It was the, the hubbub. It was the place where everyone went for their sacrifices. It was where everyone gathered for their great feast days. And so uh, there were many reasons that people would go to Jerusalem. And so uh, the trajectory uh, uh, heading out of Jerusalem was always down because Jerusalem was Zion. It was uh, on, a, on a hilltop, on a mountain almost, all right? So he's heading down this road, uh, leaving from Jerusalem to Jericho. And it says he fell into the hands of robbers they stripped him of his clothes they beat him and went away leaving him half dead you all this is a very significant point in the text because when we talk about the subject of showing mercy and acting justly there are many people when they see people in various conditions assume that they're there because of something that they've done wrong it's kind of the american way that you know uh if you have enough uh you know guts and if you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps and if you can kind of focus then you can do it you can make it this is the land of opportunity so if anyone is not doing well they must not do be doing well because of something that they've done wrong and so uh in this text we find that this gentleman is in the condition that he's in not because of something that he's done but but something that was done to him let me just say this now i do know there are many people that are in the conditions that they're in because of their own doing So I'm not giving a blanket uh, pass that everyone that is uh, in destitute situations are there because of something done to them. There are many people that make bad decisions, don't they? There are many people that do wrong things, and so we kind of sometimes reap what we sow. But the issue is, is every single person that we know that is in need, is every single person that we know that is destitute in that condition because they want to be, or is it that possibly some things have occurred outside of themselves that have allowed them to be where they are? This man was innocently walking on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho. He was taken by these robbers and these thieves who took him and they beat him up and left him for dead. He was in his situation because of something done to him. One of the greatest challenges in most churches, and can I be honest about it, is that many of us are more compassionate in our hearts towards international missionary work. Because when we look at other countries, we say, well, you know what? I can see why they would have great need in Haiti. I can see why they have a great need in the continent of Africa or maybe in some of the other uh, third world or developing uh, nations. And so I, I want to be supportive of international missions because those people are authentically needy. But not the American people, Pastor. They're in the condition that they're in because they want to be. 
And it's difficult for me to have a, a heartbeat for domestic missions because many of those people are where they are because they deserve to be their pastor. Is that really true? You all, you're looking at someone that if statistics could have actually played it, its card, I would not be standing before you. I grew up in a single parent family. I grew up on the south side of Chicago, uh, 45th and Prairie. And back in those days, you all, uh, uh, it did not have a name right now as the city has become gentrified. Now it's called Bronzeville. Back in those days, it was called the ghetto. When people get money and, and move into a neighborhood, uh, the ghetto all of a sudden has a, a title. Now it's Bronzeville. But back in those days, it was just ghetto. And so I grew up in, in that community, and, and gangs were all around me, and drugs were all around me, and things were kind of difficult. And as I went on to high school and even went on to college, I found that many of the, the, the things that other students just automatically had, I didn't even know existed. My mom didn't have the resources, and, and she wasn't aware of, of boarding schools, and she wasn't aware of, of certain summer programs, and she wasn't aware of, of different extracurricular activities. And if she was aware of them, did not have the resources to do it. Sending me to St. Ignatius and sending me to Northwestern as a single parent, African-American woman, it was very difficult. She often worked two and three jobs. And as I went to Ignatius, I'll never forget one of my classmates says, hey, Harvey, where's your car? I said, where is my car? (laughs) You mean, where's my bus fare? And so the context sometimes as we look at those that are disenfranchised is what did they do to get to this place? In John chapter 9, there's a reference where someone was blind. And remember the apostle said to Jesus, uh, who's, who sinned, this man or his parents, that this guy is in this condition? So there was some kind of thought pattern in those days, and I believe it's still today, that when people are where they are, they're there because of something that they did wrong. I submit to you this morning that there are many people in America, in this nation, in your community that are in the situation that they're in, not because of their sin, not because of their slacking, not because of their not doing the best that they could. But many things are systemic. Many of the issues that they face are issues that are bigger than themselves. And then what does God require of us when we see individuals that are in those predicaments? Well, we see what happens here in the text, don't we? We see what happens next. The Bible says that uh, a priest, verse 31, happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Here is someone who represented the people to God. Here's someone that was given the opportunity to go into the presence of God on behalf of the people. And so now he comes along this road. And we don't know the reason why he's walking down the same road. And he sees someone in the condition. The Bible says, and when he sees him. To avoid the issue, he goes on the other side of the road. He sees it, but chooses to ignore it and goes to the other side of the road. Not only that, but a Levite comes, one who is uh, accustomed with taking care of the holy things in in the temple. One who has been very acquainted with being close to God. He also notices the condition and then chooses to what? Go on the other side. How many of us find ourselves in situations that as we are in relationship with God and connected to God, when we see injustice and we see poverty and we see things that are systemically wrong and evil and and, and just, unjust, do we, in a sense, walk on the proverbial other side? Maybe it's not a road that you're on that you physically would do it, but maybe it's turning your head in another direction. Maybe it's choosing to ignore maybe the tug of God for you to be a solution to a major issue that's in your proximity. But the Bible says that these two individuals, both the priest and the Levite, they both ignored it and went to the other side. 
Indeed, you all, I believe our nation is where it is because the believing community has kept silent. Those of us who are the answer and those of us who are the hope of the world, we have chosen to remain silent and allow those who do not have the answer to become loud. And indeed, you all, it's the church who holds the responsibility of caring for those who are the least of these. Those who find themselves in situations that are beyond their own control and they need our assistance. How can we, those who have the answer, choose to ignore the answer? When I go to Detroit and I see the things that are happening, I cannot ignore what the church must do. So when I see that there are women that have been trapped in the trafficking industry and and the adult entertainment industry, I said, there's something I've got to do about it. We have more strip clubs in in the the Detroit area than than anywhere. I mean, it's unbelievable. I mean, if you heard the the street eight mile, there's a street and that, that street is divides the city from the suburb. There are no strip clubs in the suburbs, but all of them are in Detroit. And so our women go out on Thursday nights and have Bible studies at every strip club. Uh, I know some of y'all said, really? Oh, okay. And, you know, and, and I, 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 many men say, now, Pastor, I understand that there's a, a Bible study that's going on. <laughs> I've never seen more interest in the brothers about Thursday night Bible study. I said, wait. <laughs> I said, brothers, this is for the ladies only. We've chosen to go into darkness so that the light of Christ would be shown and that we would be able to rescue. And to God be the glory, many of the young women that have been trapped in the trafficking industry have been redeemed and saved and brought out of that because of the women of our church who have decided to make a difference. Amen. Not only that, you all, but the drug proliferation in Detroit, just like in Chicago, is very, very high. When there's hopelessness, there's also going to be alcoholism and addiction. As people try to anesthetize themselves from the pain and the reality of hopelessness. And so uh, we, we offer jobs and we offer job training to the drug dealers. And many of them accept it. Some of them don't. But one of the things we said is we will not tolerate drugs being in our community. We're the salt of the earth. We're the light of the world. We will not allow this to occur. We will not allow innocent kids to see this kind of activity. And so some of the men of our church said, Harvey, you know, we really want you to go uh, camping with us. And I said, man, I'm black. I don't do the camping thing, bro. Uh, We're trying to get out the woods. Um, (laughs) And so, I mean, I just had a, you know, a burden to to, kind of, you know, do what these guys were just, Pastor, please. I mean, we just want to do, we want to sing Kumbaya, and we want to get some s'mores, and we want to get a tent. We want to get a Coleman lantern. Pastor, you got to do it. You got to do it. I said, okay, tell you what. Let's meet a happy, let's do a happy uh, medium, a compromise. Let's go camping. They said, great. I said, in front of the drug house. They said, what? I said, same thing. We'll put up the tents. We'll put up the uh, uh, Coleman lanterns. We'll put up the uh, fire thing. We'll do the s'mores. But as opposed to going into the woods where there's lions and tigers and bears, oh my, we'll do it where there's drug dealers and criminals and thugs. Oh, yes. (laughs) And so the men of our church... About 100 strong, white, black, Asian, all of us, we go out in the middle of the night and pop up tents right in front of the drug houses and put up uh, campfires and lanterns and we do a big searchlight in the street. Nobody's buying drugs (laughs) with 100 men sitting around a campfire singing, Kumbaya, my Lord. And to God be the glory, we've been able to shut down every drug house near our church for the glory of God. 
and offer employment and job training to these young men. So it's not like we're just telling them, hey, listen, don't do that. But here's an alternative. The bottom line is this. We chose not to see injustice and walk on the other side. We chose not to see things that were wrong and not do something about it. In the last few minutes that I have, and I've got only about five or six, I, I, I'm, I'm challenging you because some of you say, well, Harvey, I hear your testimonies, and I thank God for the missionaries, but that's not my reality. I'm not in the inner city. I, you know, I, I'm not in, a, in a, an impoverished area necessarily. And, and, and then how does God want me in my context to operate in justice, compassion, and mercy? It's not limited to an ethnicity. It's not limited to a certain demographic. In your family, there are some dysfunctional people. You, the dysfunctional person, might be sitting in your seat. (laughs) And what then is your call to maybe mend the brokenhearted in your family? What then is your call to maybe mend the heartbreak of a neighbor who has lost her spouse and is now living out the, the, the rest of their days alone. When was the last time you made a visit to say, hey, you don't know me. I'm a neighbor down the road. I, I know your spouse passed away, but just want to let you know I'm here for you. Maybe a relative that's on hard times and going through some stuff and, and not doing it because, you know, they're negligent, but, you know, the economy or whatever it is. Wouldn't it be amazing if you chose to not turn the other way and go to the other side, but do finally what this Samaritan did in the text? The Bible says, but the Samaritan, as he traveled, verse 38, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, bandaged his wounds and poured on oil and wine. He went where the man was, and the Samaritan was someone that was most despised in that culture. The Samaritan was, uh, I mean, these were the most, uh, they were just on the outs. And now the guy who has often been the victim of ridicule and the victim of being ostracized and a victim of the one who's being judged. And maybe because of his judgment, maybe because of how much he's hurt and how much he's felt alone. He saw this man alone and something resonated in seeing that situation with his own. We don't know the reason why, but all we know is the action. This Samaritan went where he was and when he saw him, he had compassion on him because before we act justly and before we love mercy and before we walk humbly, it must be motivated by compassion. That's what we often call it, compassion, justice, and mercy. He had compassion on him. And not only did he have this great feeling of compassion, he did something with that feeling. He went to where he was, and the Bible says he, he put bandages on him and, and then poured in oil and wine to sanitize it. Put the man on his donkey. Now, back in those days, that was the mode of transportation, you all. That was his car. That was his ride. And he didn't worry about getting his ride messed up. He put the wounded man on his donkey, took him to an inn, and the Bible says all that night 
cared for him. Didn't drop him off. Didn't leave him with a ministry. Didn't write a check. Didn't say somebody else handle it. But took the responsibility himself to own what he could do to help this man. And all night long, probably staying awake, making sure as the man was in pain. Is there anything you need? Can I attend to you? He bandaged his wounds, poured oil and wine, put him on his donkey, took him to an inn, and all night took care of him. Wouldn't it be amazing if the church of Jesus Christ would be individuals that would actually leave the four corners of the wall, leave the huddle, and go out into the world and play the game and care for those who need it most? Wouldn't it be amazing if you, with your gifts and your abilities and your skill and your wisdom, would turn that into an action that would bring somebody out of their current reality into the reality of what God has called them to? The Bible says that after he did this in the morning, he spoke to the innkeeper, gave him two silver coins and said, listen, I've got to go. But, but when I return, if you take care, look after him, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. He says, listen, I care about this guy. Do we even know if he knew, knew his name? Not at all. It didn't matter because this was really an act of love. Finally, Jesus says, which of these three uh, do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of the robbers? The expert of the law says, well, obviously the one who had mercy on him. He says, go and do likewise. Now, I want to just share this final thought. The, the text opened up with the gentleman saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, what does the word say? The word says, well, love God really with all of your heart and every part of you and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, who's your neighbor? The one who shows mercy. The one who shows mercy. We know that we are not saved, we're not regenerated, we're not born again by any work of our flesh. We can't be. We're saved by God's goodness and grace, right? We know that. But individuals who are, who really are in relationship with God, according to Jesus, those people, they automatically have a merciful spirit and they show it. In other words, Jesus says, the person who shows mercy to his neighbor, that is the person who inherits eternal life. We don't get eternal life because we show mercy, and that's the reason that we're saved. But because we're saved, we show mercy. And as we show mercy, then we reflect to the world that God is alive. Christ Church, as I take my seat, I want to encourage you to change the world. Because right where you are, there are people in your proximity that you know that have fallen on hard times. People that are in situations that are beyond themselves. Maybe some of them are self-inflicted. And in Jesus' name, if you would decide today to not just celebrate the missionaries, not just say, oh, what a nice short black preacher, what a great job he did to remind us of what he's doing in Detroit, but that you would say, you know what, I hear God's call to me. And in Jesus' name, I'm going to take what God has given to me, the wisdom of my years, the, the wealth and the resources that he's given to me, and I'm going to make a difference in a substantive way and show the world that Jesus is still alive and the church of Jesus Christ is still strong and we have more power than we know. And do you know that when we do this, I'm almost done. Hallelujah. When we do this, when we do this, Christ Church, the world will know that the government and all of these systems are not the answer to the ills of our society. It is the church of Jesus Christ. It is the blood wash. It is the born again. It is the spirit filled. It is the Holy Ghost anointed church that can make a difference in this world. Christ Church, do it. Christ Church, do it. Christ Church, do it. Christ Church, 